and materials are getting depleted. We already know for 10 years that natural copper will not exist anymore. I can recycle this, this backrest of a chair, I can recycle it 99 times without any loss of mass. So until a massive part of the population becomes aware, I don't want to do this anymore, when the consumer uh, starts asking what's in it, when everyone is aware of the fact that there are alternatives, then the market, the consumers, they will ask for it and then the innovation will come. Hey guys, welcome to another episode. My guest today is Rick Lochtens. Rick is one of the first entrepreneurs to apply cradle to cradle and circular economy concepts. If you don't know what it means, we're gonna talk about it after I finish this intro, so don't get scared. Uh, linking environmental impact and business operations from ideation to execution. For his approach of ecosystem development, he builds abundant and successful businesses which we're gonna learn how to do today, that mutually reinforce each other operations in order to serve greater purpose. We'd, uh, we did a retreat with Rick together a couple days ago and I found he has a great mind, so I really wanna learn from him and ask some questions, selfish questions about how he thinks. Uh, well, he's still in Bali because he does not live in Bali, so I'm really, really appreciate you, Rick, uh, taking time and welcome to the show. Thank you, Anatoly. So, um, I want to start with terminology because people will get confused and we're going to talk a lot about circular economy and cradle to cradle. I don't fully know what that means. People don't know what that means. Uh, let's start with cradle to cradle. Can you give some examples and what is it? Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, I was fortunate enough that from the very first start that this concept was designed and developed that I was got involved in the in product designing. And what basically what you do is that at the beginning when you design a product, if it's a chair or if it's um, a car, a dashboard, that you think of it, what happens with the materials after its life cycle. Yeah. And you then include certain normal principles, which ridiculously enough are not normal. So you can take into consideration what the effect is of water usage, yeah. or can you use renewable energy? or do you use healthy materials? So it is a design concept for buildings, products, and it has a positive impact on the environment and on society. And that's what I really, what woke me up early 2000s. So that's 20 years ago, I'm afraid. Let's talk about that moment, yeah, what happened? What happened early 2000s? I was asked by an American multinational, Herman Miller, to be involved in the product design of an office task chair. It's called Herman Miller chairs. Yeah, yes. one of the best chairs in the world. I tried yes. them amazing. I always try to play the Champions League. Um, so we were in. Uh, uh, I was. I was partially involved as an ergonomist, what is one of my educations, and then this was one of the first three products which needed to be designed by the Creative Creative Design Protocol. So I had the opportunity to work with the founder from the very beginning, Brown Gardner McDonald, and. At the same time, I was getting, I uh, was becoming a first-time father, and I had to learn about healthy materials. And becoming a first-time father, you don't, you're not really involved in the process. A little bit in the beginning, and then a long time, nothing, nine months. Yes. And so the only thing you really can do is build a great uh, bedroom, a nursery room for that child. Uh, so your center of the universe. And I was sitting in this design team and I heard about carcinogen 
off-gassing materials from uh, panels. So I heard from uh, DNA modifying materials off-gassing from what I just bought for my sons, my center of the universe, uh, bedroom. And I thought, I'm not going to be part of this. Well, what does so, it mean, off-gassing? Sorry. Basically means that, let me give you a good example. There are people who are very proud that they, when they drive a car out of the garage, when they just bought it new, that it really smells new, you know, yeah. that's a good smell. Um, it's well, a good smell. Yeah. I mean, it is a good smell. Yeah, but it is formaldehyde, which basically is toxigenous and uh, is can uh, causes cancer. So... Um, we just ruined we the new car smell for me forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so and we accept that as normal. And what I decided that I didn't want to be part of that anymore. And that led me on a path of seeking healthy materials, mm-hmm. smart solutions so you can keep materials in endless cycles. And um, basically early 2000, that meant that I was standing in the desert on a soapbox trying to convey that you can make phenomenal good business with doing the right thing instead of the less bad one. And um, that's the path I went on because of that. So my defining moment was when I realized that, my, that I put my son, without knowing what was in the materials, in, a, in an unhealthy environment. So for people who are not aware, including myself, I'm just gonna run to my nursery now from this podcast, <laughs> and throw everything away. Yeah. Uh, what do they need to, how, how would they be aware? Because well, I mean, we are, everything we do here is for awareness. So for dad like me, who is ignorant, unfortunately, and for other dads who just didn't know what they didn't know, what can we do? Like how we can find out the materials we use, probably. Yeah, um, well, I I took this from a guy which I really, really re- appreciate. It's Lucas Hooks. And mm-hmm. it was at the time we were, work, I was working with him in a combination of how to click and unclick materials. And okay. then we, we wanted to raise this awareness. And he came up with the idea. It's as simple as this. Ask what's in it. So when you're buying something, when you're acquiring something, we already got used to look on what E numbers are in our food or yeah. um, what is it made of. We are used to that when it comes to food and daily nutrition and those kind of things or when you look on what's in my shampoo. Yeah. But you don't ask it when it's in the car or you don't ask it. You don't, you don't ask how many materials there are in your television set. Ask what's in it because when the one who is selling this to you or offering this service to you cannot tell you that then you also cannot lead on where it comes from so might go good might go but might be exposing yourself ask what's in it that's my advice but do you think there is any television on earth that that is following the good principles that is not toxic or any car on earth? <laughs> um, no, because I used as an example very complex yeah. products. Yeah. Uh, but um, when I take a, a more simpler one, you could ask if the product you're buying, if it can be dissembled to a material level, right? I can buy a phone with which you cannot repair at all, or I can buy a phone which is completely repairable and replaceable by its parts. Those are decisions you're making. And 
And the difference is just for my understanding and for people, the difference is if it's repairable and replaceable, you can go and replace it yourself and then you don't have to waste material. You don't have to throw the phone away and get the new phone, right? Yeah. So you, when you buy sneakers, let's keep it simple, you can buy sneakers which um, don't take care of the environment at all. Yeah? But you can also buy sneakers that when you're running through the forest and the sole is wearing off, that the particles the soil is leaving are not plastics which will stay there for two and a half thousand years. Wow. That's a choice you can make. And that sneaker will have the same price as the other one. But now you're, now, now you're choosing, I want to have white ones or black ones, or I want to have cool ones. But you can also, when you ask what's in this sneaker, then you can also make a conscious choice to what you want to leave behind when you're running in the forest. Yeah. I mean, the other issue is that People don't always tell you the truth. <laughs> um, Absolute. So, I mean, some there's a lot of the slogans. This is organic. This is that. This is that. And I was talking to somebody, I think, in this podcast, and they say most of it is actually bullshit. Yeah. Especially if it comes from the country, like, let's say, Indonesia. Nothing against Indonesia, <laughs> but the laws in Indonesia, well, like, you can put anything on a package. They have those chickens that they that they have, like, on a crate, and it says organic. <laughs> just, <laughs> just feed them whatever kind of head is organic. So, yeah. uh, I think this leads back to uh, what I earlier said on standing on the soapbox in the middle of the desert. Yeah. Because what you will always have is that when people are becoming aware, a group of people or a mass of people, then um, we develop trends in this. Yeah? And in the traditional capitalistic way, you, what you do is you create demand. Yes. Yeah? So you grow your market. And when you then, from a trend perspective, see that there is a growing audience who wants to seek for more sustainable materials or organic materials, yes, then you will see that the marketeers of the companies, they will make the choice to say, wow, from today on, we are cool in fish or we are, uh, uh, they've got on the table on what, mm, what can we do to green ourselves. And then you get marketing and marketeers instead of true values and ambitions and where you stand for. And I think as a consumer, it's your choice to want to take that split second of thinking on why you're buying what, more than only how it looks like or how it serves a, a specific need. So just be conscious about the purchasing decisions and not make them irrational. Yeah. Don't let yourself being fooled. So what questions can people ask? Let's say I, I'm, I'm buying a something simple, not a TV, um, let's say a jewelry. Um, a jewelry, well, jewelry, it's simple because you're already doing it. So you're going to ask, is this gold or is it fake, right? Yeah. Okay. When you've got gold, you've got a pure material. When it's fake, you've got two or three materials. Yeah. And then there's a little bit of goldish uh, um, painted on it, right? Yeah. So, what will be more effective from an environmental or ecological aspect? When you've got one material, or you choose to buy three materials glued and, 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 and painted together? Definitely one. But then people will go and say, when I say, oh, buy gold, people will say, what about the gold mines? What about the people working in gold mines and uh, don't have good conditions and all those kind of things? Yeah, but then you're buying yourself a bracelet made out of wooden, uh, wooden marbles. Yeah, 
Maybe that. Yeah, it's a choice. Yeah, it's essentially strive for one material. If you're buying a cradle for your son, buy a wooden cradle. Don't buy a cradle made of plastic. Yeah. So so I, and that's that's really what I started focusing on in uh, uh, in recent years, and that also brings back to another term I think we wanted to explain in the circular economy yeah yeah mm, let me first do the definition and then you have to remind me on the fact that I was going towards material depletion yeah. um, so out of the principles of how you can design stuff and that you take into consideration of what is happening at the end of the life cycle of the product where credit creator was that you then include your water usage your energy and the stuff we've been talking about then um, you're actually, actually looking at the, uh, at the world that you are including something else than only economics. Yeah. So um, the way I wrote it, and that was also from, from the same people I mentioned before, it's you talking about ecology, yeah. economy, and equity. And equity then think of uh, male-female equality, the people, the staff, uh, yeah. personal respect ecology is the obvious one that's nature's laws yeah. and economy that's where the actually the discussion focused around the circle economy means that you are striving to be able to keep materials in infinite cycles so when you take a biome base when you take a biomass as as a start yeah. you can make a material out of that it can become a brick or a panel then you use that panel in the ceiling of the studio. Yeah. You take it out and then it can go back into the soil. Yeah. Or you've got, like what we said, you've got a complex thing like two and a half thousand materials like a television set. There's technology materials in it. And you want to keep them in the cycle as long as possible. And that's where then the R's come in. Recycle, refurbish, um, those kind of things. The circular economy basically says you're building an economic system which is regenerative. Yeah. So where every day that you uh, start in most in most industries is about take you take something from the soil yeah. or from earth, then you make something out of it, and when you don't use it, you waste it, you throw it away. That's linear. Yes. Circular is that you take something from the earth or from what you make, that you use it in a cycle as a product application, the sneaker we've been talking about, yeah. but that then the materials can go back into the soil or they can be endlessly recycled so you don't have to take. And that is the economic part. And to challenge it, say I would have devoted my career on um, pumping up oil. Yeah. When I've got a well, of where I pump up the oil. I know one thing for sure. Every next day my business opens, I've got less than the day before. Yeah. So ultimately my business is finite. What would it mean if I use materials which are there in abundance, which now are perceived to be waste, that I can make products out of them, which also can come back to me, where I can make new products out. So I don't have to buy the raw materials all the time. Yeah. That is a different kind of business model. That's where you keep the earth, it's enabling to be regenerative. That's a regenerative economic system. And that's what I've been working on from the very start. That's amazing. Um, I'm reminding you about depletion, that, yeah. that you asked me to remind me, but that's, that's amazing. I think 
do you think before we go to depletion i i love that there's something that i really want to do i did manufacturing of products that we sell online for some time and also it always bothered me that okay there's a lot of waste hmm. even the packaging is waste there's absolutely a, a lot of waste so do you think it's possible your end north star as we say is possible to have everything reusable and be part of the circular economy i don't know if it will happen in my lifetime but i do know that we don't have any other option okay and yeah i think that's an angle to now go into this material depletion because what we've seen in say the last 15 years yeah first we were talking in our communities little by little first the scientists and more population then you've got the early adopters we were talking about climate change yeah? think of al gore way back yeah yeah climate change is an awareness right so hmm, there's something with the climate and although all the scientific reports were piling up and piling up and piling up the general population of this globe were like okay yeah something is with the climate but then we changed our wording in in our societies then it was we need now climate action yeah so action is a call to do something about yes. the climate yeah so the awareness changed yes and from there on we're now currently talking about climate crisis yeah so when you're looking in the day-to-day -day news calculate the number of uh, natural disasters happening five years ago and then take this week yeah so that's the climate crisis what we are doing to battle the climate crisis and that's where the whole circle economy also rode that wave yeah what we are doing is that we focused our attention to renewable energy. Yes. Solar power, wind power, water power. Last week, UK for the first time used more green uh, uh, energy, electricity by wind power than on traditional resources. So that's how fast we are growing. They also don't have a choice anymore because Russia just can't, can't, can't find your energy. Brother. The opinion about Russia, I want to leave out of this conversation, but I Our, do have one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But that because that is something which is which is called interdependence yes. and that makes economic shifts but that's a different topic okay. but we had the technical solutions we were able to do something about renewable energy for more than two or three decades already okay. right yeah. and um the focus has been very much on this the co2 issue uh, climate but what we're doing at the same time in that same process of take from the earth, make a product out of it, waste it, throw it away, burn it, whatever. What we're doing at the same time is that we're taking all these materials from our only cradle, and that's our planet Earth. Yes. And we are depleting currently already 1.7 times per year the total natural resources the earth can regenerate in a year for us. And when we will be growing on population, and when we want to have more people living at a decent living standard, or what at least what we define as a decent living standard, yes. then we will need more and more and more materials. And materials are getting depleted. We already know for 10 years that natural copper will not exist anymore. Really? Imagine this studio without having the ability to transport electricity around copper. Yes. Those are massive challenges. So 
we focused on material depletion. And that's why we started a foundation. That's the Material Innovation uh, Center. And in the Material Innovation Center, we gather, we gather people who come together to co-create, to cooperate, and to take shared responsibility for this total supply chain, to be innovative with new materials. But materials which are made from natural resources, which are there in abundance, instead of, like for example, the mining of gold, because yeah. the price per kilogram of gold is not for nothing. Yeah. There's not too much about it. And that's what we're really doing. So how you bring an innovation from uh, technology, from a laboratory, into massive commercial scale. And we had the opportunity to learn this into uh, our combined careers of about 30 years, and we're now deploying that all over the world. Reason why? The timing is right now. Huh? So there are more than the, the way it works is that first need to become people need to become aware, climate awareness, climate uh, crisis, uh, climate action, and climate crisis. Yeah, people need to be aware. You need to know what's in it, what's in the material. Yes. Yeah. When you know, then you need to want. So for me. That was my defining moment with my son when I realized that I put him in a toxic environment. That's where I want to make a change. And that's where I started on this path um, two decades ago. But then you need technologies which enable you to do the right thing. Yes. The same like with renewable energy, the technologies for material, uh, to battle material play, uh, depletion, they are there as well. So, know, want, enable. And then you simply have to go out and do it. And that's the phase where we are right now. So we are going out and doing it. We've got this technology stack, all these kinds of innovations, innovations and patents and IPs where we can take off, where we can take local challenges of farmers or of manufacturing companies or mega brands and then guide them through a process where they can, instead of chopping trees in order to make their displays, that they can make the displays from the waste material they create for the product they want to sell. And that's what we do. How? Do you bring it from an idea, an invention, to massive economic scale? And that's what a material innovation does. The same is that it needs the awareness. Yeah. So when you're working with farmers in rural areas, they need to become aware as well. So we put very much attention to that and how their local societies can have an additional income stream or how they can have a diversification of their income. So they're less depending on a flood or a drought yes. because of climate change, that they've got an alternative. And the last one is then that you need big brands, big off-takers to make it real. Because at the end of the day, it is always about volume of scale. Yes. When you've got a nice little project and you're doing something with 10 people, it has an impact on 20 people. That doesn't change the world. So everything we do needs to be repl replicable in different areas and it needs to be scalable. And um, that's what I devoted my Beautiful. career to. I love how you combine business with doing good. I think that's, uh, that's beautiful. Can you share some of the success stories, the materials you deployed or things you made that made a difference? Um, yes, in recent years, I've been involved in taking a technology from a laboratory 
to commercial scale. It's now at a commercial scale manufacturing. And to be honest, as soon as it is there, I lose my interest. Then others can do it. I li- I love the plowing and seeding. But to give you an example of which I can speak freely about, because this is also with large multinationals, is that we took the shells from cocoa residue, so cacao. Yeah. We used a technology which, with only water, pressure, and heat, you can make a panel. And think of a sheet material. Yeah. So think of a sheet of corrugate or a sheet of particle board or MDF. Think of that. So sturdy material. Okay. So we use the biomass waste stream from the manufacturing of what they're selling, cocoa. Yeah. And they decided to want to make this place out of this. This place? Yes. Okay. So for in supermarkets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they were always talking about a Mr. Red and a Mr. Blue. And then they came up with a brilliant idea to come up with Miss Green. So we're talking M&M chocolate. Okay. Yeah. And Miss Green then tells about the sustainable part of the story of that company. Yeah. And then what we did is we put these displays, which look completely different than what you traditionally will find in the supermarket, where you put the story on, on what this what this display is made of, and you put your story as a brand on what your ambitions and values are from sustainability, ecology, and then you sell your M&M chocolates on it. And we did that in, every, in all the Tesco's in the UK. Wow. The interesting part is this material took, had a two times longer life cycle than the traditional displays made out of corrugate. Why is that? It was stronger. Okay. It was a better material. And the interesting part was that the consumers liked it. So they sold more chocolate than ever before on a uh, marketing action like that. What you then get is that you compare this to what did you, what could you now not do. For corrugate, you need to chop trees. When you chop trees, you have CO2 emissions. Yeah. So when you then place those life cycle analyzers next to each other and the cost of making this material, then you are actually creating money whilst doing it. So I've got a positive economic business case. I've got a happy consumer. I've got a waste material which now isn't being burned or discarded, which becomes a valuable material. Yeah. Then I've got a perfect application for it, a display. And at the end of the day, we're still selling, selling chocolate. How much of those cocoa? Sh- I guess they use cocoa shells in MMs anyway, so they need the material. Of the- course. Okay. You need to process it. The sh- you, you don't want to have the shell in your chocolate. I can promise you that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It will taste completely different, and you need a lot of teeth. Yes. <laughs> okay. So ideally, you're already ha- you're already working in that, and this is your waste. Your company's your company's producing some waste that they can take this waste and reuse the waste. Yeah, but I'd rather tell about a project where I'm working on right now, if you, if you yeah, like. Yeah, do it. So uh, the reason why I came up with this is that uh, currently we are working in Ghana uh, to build a material innovation center there, but we don't want to run in, punch in some money, and then walk away and think everything is fine. So we're doing a feasibility study, which takes us about a year. What we're doing there... And that's why I also took the example of the chocolate. We are going to work with the farmers who may produce the cocoa. 
they will have an additional income because we're going to buy the materials they normally waste. We're going to buy them from them. Then we've got two or three technology solutions for making sheet materials. Yeah, We're going to investigate what is best applicable, and that is for the built environment. So then the local built environment is under pressure because now they need to import 80% of that out of all places of the world. Then you've got import taxes, you've got local supply chain disruptions, you've got all these kind of things. Now suddenly you can make this material in your own economy. Then we include the commercial partners. So the one who is processing the cocoa, the one who is buying the cocoa in order to make his product, we're combining these commercial partners and it is supported by the government, in this case the Luxembourg government, European Union. And so we have all these stakeholders working together in order to give a new innovation light. There is prosperity for everyone and everything because we're not wasting it anymore. And building a project like that and a center like that, that's really satisfying, to be honest. Wow, that's beautiful. And how, who is selling the actual end product, like all those building materials? Is it you're selling <coughs> or you're empowering some other company in Ghana to sell it? How does that work? Um, when you grow from idea, invention, IP patent into... Uh, proof of concept, so can I do this? Then you have to grow yourself into batch production, you could name it, but then you need the volume of skill and then you need manufacturing capacity. Yeah. Yes. So the manufacturing capacity, that's not what we're doing ourselves. But when you manufacture it, you also need off-takers. These we bring to the project early stage as well. When you're, um, uh, then you can think of other ways of do business with each other. Because when you want to keep these materials in endless loops, yeah. when you sold it to someone, how are you going to get it back? That's good. Yeah. So yeah. when the economic <clears throat> transition has been there, how are you going to get it back? So we also provide with a service um, where basically you don't have to sell. You, you, it's a product as a service. You can lease then the use of the materials or product applications. Then you need to track and trace these materials. So that's also why we put a digital layer on it, like with, uh, to keep it simple, like with blockchain. Yeah. So you can track and trace these materials and what's happening to them in their life cycle. And that's what we're all combining. That's what we are the architect from. But other stakeholders can make their money because I'm not good at selling chocolate. I'm not good at being a farmer. So let everyone, every stakeholder do what he's good at, but let the whole ecosystem function for the better of everything and everyone wow what do you think i mean this sounds amazing so my question would be you're doing it 20 years what do you think people companies did not wake up to this yet why is this not mainstream the battle of sustainability most of the time is battling the amortization of the investments made so when you invested in machines and a factory 20 years ago you want to use that facility, the manufacturing facility, as long as you can, so you can make more return on investment on it, right? Yes. But when you built this facility 20 years ago, and 15 years ago, so five years later, a new innovation came up, which is better, which is healthier, which is economic more interesting, which doesn't uh, deplete resources of the world, yeah? Then 
the normal thing would be that you switch, but you just invest it with a horizon of 20 years. So you first want to capitalize on that investment before you introduce a new technology. And that's the, forgive me my French, that's the bullshit of everything. Okay. Because you know already that there is a better alternative, but you're not going to use it because you want to capitalize on what you invested earlier in. And that's most of the time the real reason why it happens. The other reason is volume of scale. When you've got an industry like... Uh, MDF and particle board, yeah, which has been around for 60 years, that material is everywhere in our environment, then you, when you are the new kid on the block, they're going to ask you, so a new innovation, new material, better alternative, with legislation and legislation, they're going to ask you 10 times more questions in order to be allowed into the market. So most of the time it's also protectionism of innovation into the markets, which um, yeah, slows everything down. So until a massive part of the population becomes aware, I don't want to do this anymore, yes. when the consumer doesn't st uh, starts asking what's in it, when everyone is aware of the fact that there are alternatives, then the market, the consumers, they will ask for it and then that innovation will come. Yes. I mean, I'm just trying to think what I did and I'm like, how would I implement that in what I'm doing, right? So let's say I have a business and selling online, we're selling a kitchen product. Mm -hmm. The way how it's usually done, it's you go to Chinese manufacturer because they're the cheapest one and easier to deal with and they can create a volume because, I mean, it's the margins are tight. You go to them and you say, I need you to manufacture me this I don't know, knives. Or manufacturing me this bamboo uh, holders for cup holders. And then they do it. But of course, they are not following any of this because they are also having, as you're saying, they're having their equipment that they're using. So unless this, unless this Chinese manufacturer changes their approach, I could not make it into my business. Yeah, but that's the choice, right? Yes. The choice is... Do you want to sell a million products which have toxic materials in them, which people are going to use in their houses, where simply because you may you could make a dime, um, you're going to keep that in, in, in cycles? Do you want to be part of that? The alternative is that you bring a healthier product, a better product, a product which can come back to you, which can be reused, where you don't have to buy all the time from the manufacturer, which you can keep in cycles. And so when you create added value instead of margin and price erosion, that's where you provide an alternative. And the perception of that a sustainable or a environmental friendly product is more expensive than what it is replaces, that's a, that's an, that's an, that's a fantasy. It's a theocracy. Yeah. Capitalism and marketeers make us believe this. And yes, in the beginning of an innovation, you don't have the volume of scale. So you have to grow there. But when you and I decide to buy something which creates added value to us, which we can use 10 years instead of one year, yes. which 
uh, when we make that conscious choice, then it's simple because at the end of the day, it'll be also it will be more economic effective. I don't think that awareness is there at all. I mean, I'm just talking for I sell on Amazon, and I'm talking to a lot of people who sell on Amazon. This is not the conversations we're having, but this is the conversation we should be having. Yeah, and you will have. Yeah. Because your customers won't accept it anymore. I mean, that's what I'm also not sure. Because customers are not aware the same as we're not aware. Like mm. Nobody's sort of aware. There's like limited amount of people like yourself mm. who are experts who are aware. But, I mean, customers in the United States might be aware. Mm. Customers in Indonesia, you see how they, if you go here and you buy, let's say, a food to go, Mm-hmm. They'll put a salt in a separate plastic bag. They put a chicken in a separate plastic bag, mm-hmm. rice in a separate plastic bag. Why? Why are you doing <laughs> this? Like, I, don't, I don't get And then you need to unpack all of this. You spend like two hours unpacking every plastic bag. People need tangible, concrete things, concrete products. Yeah? So let me take a counterexample. Yes. Um, I'm from Belanda. So I don't know anything about Indonesia. But first question, do you think that there is bamboo on this island available? Definitely. Okay, so there's I'm bamboo. I'm looking at one right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's take bamboo, yeah? Then suddenly it goes viral on the, I don't know, on the social media, what um, the drinking straws do in the ocean. Yes. Yeah, trillions and trillions of plastic drinking straws we've been using, right? Yes. Then suddenly we think, wow, see this drinking straw. It came from me, went all the way via the rivers and went into the ocean. What alternative did we come up with when you now get a drink in most places in uh, Bali? It's a bamboo straw. Yes. Okay. That bamboo, bamboo, bamboo straw was there forever. So the only thing we're going to do is we're not going to take the easy plastic to use. We're going to use it in our uh, own environments anymore. But the change of going from plastic straws to bamboo straws or a metal one or what other variations you have took three years. Yes, but it only worked for one reason, I think. Because legislation said you can't have plastic straws anymore in Bali. And they still, I asked them, like, do you understand why they don't have plastic straws? They don't. They're just like, okay, there's no plastic straws. Police told me no plastic straws. No plastic straws. They have no idea, same as plastic bags. They don't know what's wrong. And I think this is like uh, trying to make something you have no idea. Like, I want to make a pie without knowing what pie is. It's like, it never work in the end. No, absolute. Um, that will take time. That will take time. But what you always have with every big paradigm shift in history of man is that it needs a tipping point of people who are going to do it different. And that tipping point of people that's already there. Because you are raising the question, why is it all on these different plastic bags? Hey, Anatoly, you became aware. Yes. So the next time you're ordering food, and you're saying, well, you can wrap it in uh, paper or you, can, you don't have to do it in all these plastic bags, then that, that, that restaurant suddenly thinks, hey, I don't have to buy all these plastic bags anymore. So, hey, my profit and my margin on my food is higher. 
Wow. Actually, so you're already aware. And when you cause that ripple effect by asking the question, and I'm circling back, what's in it? Why do I use it? Is there an alternative? Plastic straw, bamboo straw. When enough people and organization, and yes, legislation and regulatories come in there, then you can create that really fast. Yeah. And it took us already way too long. And there is another, there's another uh, driver for this. Those materials will not be available anymore. We're talking about material depletion. So plastic will not be available for us? Oh, yeah, plastic. But plastic is, plastic is one of the most beautiful things happened to mankind and it's one of the worst things happened to mankind. And the way we use it and the kind of plastics we are using and the way we combine these plastics, that's what's killing it. So it makes me so sad when a couple of days ago when we did this river walk together that you're in this beautiful environment, you're having wonderful conversations, the massiveness of green is rising up above you, and then you see this one layer where the last flooding was, which is completely decorated with all kinds of plastics. That makes yeah. me really sad. And what I'm hoping for, but I'm also a dreamer, and I'm also an enthusiastic, you know, when I'm traveling, and I'm sending a postcard home, yeah? I'm sending that postcard of a beautiful jungle or phenomenal rice fields. I'm not sending a postcard of a petrol manufacturing cleaning plant to show where I'm at on, on my holiday. I'm, I'm not sending, I'm not taking pictures of all the plastics I find on the beach. I take a picture of the sunset. Yeah? So when you want to see a sunset without plastics, why don't you pick up the freaking bag and throw it in a bin? Yes, that's what we did actually. I'm actually pretty good at that because we went, uh, we always, when we go to the beach, me and kids, like the idea is, okay, let's go pick up the plastic. And my son would now automatically pick up plastic from the beach. You know, he sees, he's like, I want to stay longer, I want to pick up the plastic. I'm like, I'm really hungry, but I cannot, cannot say anything. So you can stay for five minutes, but then we go. He would pick up plastic. Uh, yeah, but isn't it beautiful that how you grew into this in your life yes in the societies you grew up with and you've been traveling a lot yes. yeah you've been seeing the world that you're now trans handing this over to a next generation who doesn't know any better anymore that when you see something which is rubbish that you clean it up yeah <clears throat> but the problem is that i mean people back at where i'm from latvia hmm the understanding is pretty low. Like I was talking to somebody um, about recycling, which is another mm -hmm. another uh, way how to use circular economy. Um, and I was like, why don't you recycle? He's like, well, I tried recycling. I put everything in different beans and then the garbage thing comes. I put it all in one. And I'm like, why am I wasting my time? And what can I say? I'm like, you're right. Yeah, so the real question is then for that individual, okay, what are they doing, right? Well, perhaps the recycling company itself has invested in sensors and material uh, detectors that it is more cost-effective to separate it in the recycling facility than trusting the individual household owner to be exactly aware if it's a PET plastic or if it's a polypropylene plastic. Yes. 
So that's technology as well. The thing is that when you do this, when you make a choice on either household separation or separation at the at, uh, recycling plan, that you need to get the people in your village and in your community and in your tribe to be aware on the why of the choice. It's again on the why. But I also want to address something here, which you are doing right now during this conversation, and which might be of interest for, for people to think about. Okay. Because what I learned by providing the creative or innovative alternative for over the years. Yeah? You encounter tremendous amounts of people with different roles and positions. If it's in an organization commercial, if it's political, if it's supplier or if it's a logistics provider or it is a simple consumer or whatever. Yeah? But when you're offering something new, yeah, what you see is that from a behavioral change, people would love to continue doing what they always did. Yes. So people really like to stay in like a habitat status quo situation or what or what. So change always causes resistance. Yes. If it's political evolutions, change always causes resistance. And what you will then get most of the time is okay, this is a cleaner material, it's economic fireball, it is um, uh, healthier, it is uh, uh, whatever. Yes, I understand that. But what about this uh, uh, certification? But what about this regulation? Yes, but what are you going to do on it? Yes, but you're more expensive. The yes buts in life will never get you anywhere. What you're looking for when you want to make a change is the people who say yes and. Because yes and means that you're going to contribute, that you're going to add value, that you're going to be co-creative and that you're taking care of the stakeholders and your tribe. And the other ones I really like is the no. No because. And the reason why that is, is that when someone says to you, well, okay, it's a healthier product, it's a natural product, it's endless cycles and all that product, and I'm not going to do it. No, I'm not going to join because I want to capitalize on the investment I made. That's also great. Reason why? That sends someone who will not tag along. That was someone who is saving you time trying to convince him or her. Yes. And that's effective as well. So you rather focus on the opportunities and the brilliance in life than on the no and then on the yes buts. I love that. Um, Thank you. I'm now feeling uncomfortable saying yes, but but, <laughs> but. Yeah, we'll use that for the rest of this conversation. Oh no, you ruined my flow now. <laughs> I don't know what to say anymore. Um, That's why I did it. <laughs> I figured. I figured. Um, so you're saying, getting back to your story, because your story is fascinating. Um, you were standing in a desert. In a box of soap, was it real? Yeah, soap box is like an English saying when you conv when you stand yeah. st on the stage, yeah, yeah. but no one is there to look at you. You're in the desert, you're alone, so no one listened. Yeah. So what happened next? How did how did Rick start to move through life and really taking advantage of of his new realization? Mm. Well, in essence, I come from 
background in medicine and specialize in the field of expertise is human behavioral change. So if it's a patient you're working on who has to be more independent from his complaints or his stress, or if it's a group of people who are looking to find an alternative of a toxic material, at the end of the day, it's all about behavioral change. And um, I was very fortunate to, like I said earlier on, to be at the very first uh, front of building or developing a truly sustainable, regenerative product that offers Tasia. And when I had my defining moment, when I said, okay, I've been an entrepreneur since I was 24 years old. So um, then what I've been looking for continuously whenever I build a company or was involved in a project is how can I contribute to this in a positive societal a positive economic and a positive ecological effect. And by doing this over the years, I did crazy stuff. So like, for example, the first business concept on the internet from the dealer for the dealer, because there was something coming up which we today call a web shop. Yes. Um, I could do this with the backing of an American stock exchange multinational from a cash perspective, because <clears throat> that was expensive at the time. I think of uh, 10,000 times more than when you want to build a web shop right now. And when I said, okay, how I want to solve for that, I've been proclaiming I can recycle this, this backrest of a chair, I can recycle it 99 times without any loss of mass. And I give you 10 years of warranties on it. So this product is infinite there. But then it was five, six, seven years down the road, I never got the backrest back. So... That's a problem. Why do I do that? That's a problem. You create a product too good. Nobody wants to give it back. Yes. So then I said, okay, when my challenge is that I uh, don't get my materials back, which of extreme value because I can no more, more make no products of it. Then I said, you know what? I'm not going to sell you the chair anymore. I'm going to provide you the service of comfortable seating. And I take care of this product during the time you are going to use it. So you don't have to worry about it anymore. That was the first full operational lease company for office furniture. And that was like, I don't know, 2008, 9, 10, somewhere. And um, that's also what we reactivated now because it was way ahead of its time. And getting this technology with water pressure and heat, it's called ECO, um, to bring it from a lab to commercial scale where they're now growing into. I I I did really cool stuff. I think no one else needs to think that, but I love what I'm doing. And I also could prove that you can make a good income out of that. I don't want five yards and uh, seven homes, but I can have a really decent income. I've got three phenomenal children. They're all in university, uh, never had any shortage in their lives. I was doing the right thing. I could never apply for a job at a bank or apply for a job at a petrochemical uh, company but when they would ask me to guide them through a process of innovation where they can have a positive impact on the firm that's where that's where i want to build so i don't want to be a consultant i want to build things because that's where you truly connect that's where you truly go into the yes hands that's where you truly create value together so i'm looking for great people wanting to do great stuff 
and have a blast while we're doing it because it's about the journey. Yeah. I'm standing up. Uh, where should I stand up? <laughs> so, Rick, uh, I know you're traveling as well. You've been a sort of digital nomad or nomad, maybe not digital because you... Mm, I still have a place in, uh, in the Netherlands, a phenomenal home where I've For got difficult... Hmm? For your dog. For my dog, yes. <laughs> Seep. Uh, so really interesting for the audience. Thank you for bringing this up, Anatoly. Yeah, Seep is now 10 years old. When he stands on his back leg and his back feet, he's like one meter 80 and he is about 55 kilograms. And that dog needs to train. And that's one of the reasons why I've got, I'm going waves off. Now I'm going to let go of my roots or not. And um, for me right now, also after recent weeks, it feels that I want to keep those roots. But I love traveling. I've loved doing that all my life. Um, I'm now in a different phase of my life that I really can do that. Create it for myself in the way how I work and what I do, the opportunity to travel to the places where I've got the projects. And I can do this most of the time independent from time and place. So I try to live six or seven months a year in different places of the world. But I also like to go back to my roots, to my phenomenal place where everything is perfect. And then, yeah, home is within yourself. It's always, home is always inside you. But to have your stuff and your things around you, which are in a place, in a certain energy field, that's what is extreme of, of extreme value as well. Beautiful. So what, how does the next 10 years for Rick look like? Huh. Um, during COVID, and actually that's also the reason why, I'm, why I signed up with you. During COVID, I, no, let me put it like this. Before COVID, um, I did a lot of speaking engagement and traveled all the world. So from Tokyo to Mexico to whatever. In this whole process of, hey guys, let's do, it, let's do this regenerative economics thing. So there was conveying, there was um, giving lectures, um, there was giving speeches. But during COVID, I was in the beginning of it, it was a circular economy event, congress whatsoever in India, where I was to speak. And then I suddenly found myself because of lockdowns behind the screen and a camera talking to 2000 people and I didn't see anyone. And I need the energy of people. So that's where I parted from that. And I also had, in private, I had quite a challenging uh, period, a uh, transitional phase. So I didn't really speak or I didn't really go out in order to convey everything I've been just sharing in this podcast. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to do that again. So to tell the bigger story on a bigger platform. And I always in my career, every five years, I came up with something new. What's the next big thing? I've got that ready as well. Um, in my head um, I closed the last one because I just published a book on it yes. and um, I'm going to the global stage again yes and I feel energized again but I needed two years to really retreat a little bit in myself All and right. actually last week was really the best last step to take in that process yeah beautiful uh, I want to make sure people know about your book. So can you let me know the name of the book? I mean, I, it's called Circular Economy and Behavioral Change. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Isn't that a surprise? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So why do you decide to write a book 
Um, where can people get the book and what's the book about? Well, to be honest, I've been writing all, all, almost always. Um, but in recent years, it was like scientific publications or um, was much more academic orientated. Um, and uh, there is this uh, platform. I don't know if I can na- say yeah, that. Yeah, please. Yeah. It's called BookBoon, and BookBoon is the world's largest e-learning platform. And um, so companies sign up for that, and they've got educational books, you could say. And that could be as simple as how to work with Excel to something uh, like what I've been writing on. And um, they, I was in a process where I thought, okay, I really want to start writing again. And this was uh, 2021. In May, and I shared that, and I also wanted to go to some place, and I shared that with uh, my, my my dearest, because that would also mean that I would be, be gone for a couple of weeks, months, to go out and do this. And they all said, "Well, Rick, go out and do that." And also, my kids, Dad, please go away. You have to do that. And then on Monday, I was in a meeting, and I was running this company, and I had nine meetings and making decisions whatsoever, and I missed like five phone calls out of uh, a place. And I was thinking, yeah. in the evening, I got a phone call that they had hunted me because um, they asked in five countries who to write a book on the basics of circular economy, when you want to start, when you don't know anything about sustainable entrepreneurship. And out of these five countries, my name came. So they asked if I wanted to do it, and I I was like, okay, last weekend I've been sh- saying this. Yes. You're a good man. Trying it. And then uh, Monday I got this call, so I immediately said yes. And it was a nightmare. Because when you are so into a specific uh, expertise for so many years, now I needed to write it for someone who really never, it's his first introduction to. So I had to go back to all the basics. Yes. And um, so it took me way longer than I thought. And what it does, it is a six-step approach where when you want to start something, when you want to include a circular or environmental product into your into your portfolio, when you want to start on this sustainable entrepreneurial adventure, it's like a six-step approach where I take you to the process on how to do it. Because like I said... We're now in the phase of simply having good to go out and do it. And um, what I'm doing in that also, most of the time, is sharing every stupid mistake I make in order for others to prevent, to make the same mistakes because we need to accelerate. There is no time anymore. And um, that's what it is. But you, so you don't have especially need to be a member of this platform. You can also download it and you pay a, you pay a small fee and then... Um, We'll put the link in the show notes if you guys want to check out the book. Please do. Yeah. Support Rick in his circular economy journey. Well, thank you. The last uh, part I have in the podcast called Rapid Fire Questions. Though I call Rapid Fire, doesn't mean that you should respond in a short way. You just similar questions I ask everybody who comes here. Okay. Um, and my, not related to circular economy behavioral change, just related to um, raising awareness. So the first question is, if you look back at your life, what would be the biggest failure or step back and what do you learn from it? Let me repeat. What's the biggest failure of? Or, or a step back you had and uh, what do you learn from it? The biggest failure in life um, uh, or back step? In my personal life or career? 
you choose? <laughs> of course, I choose Korea. Um, Personal? No, no, no. no, no, no. I'm, <laughs> no I'm going to choose Korea on this one. Sure. Um, when you are growing a business and you go from innovation to uh, uh, commercial scale, you go through a process which they call the valley of death. And that's where you need to commercialize. And that's the time it takes you to commercialize and start making money. It's, it's a simple traditional thing. Then that is always all a question about resources. And resources come to people, but ultimately they will boil down to cash. When you then do not have the right investor with the right mindset, then you build this phenomenal, fantastic opportunity. You did everything right, but then traditional thinking, greed walks into your house, and people who say that they're going to help you, but they're actually only there for one thing, to take it away. And I let greed come into a house in a business I was five years involved with, six years involved with, and that had a big effect on my team. And that I see is one of the biggest failures I made. I should have kicked him out not only once like I did, I should have kicked him out twice. But I let that go. It's great to hear that you're getting so emotional when I'm sharing I'm my so story. so emotional about your story. Yeah, you should kick him out three times. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, the other question is, uh, what are some of the routines that helps you to get you in, into focus? could be... Uh, morning routine, night routine, diet, anything um, that keeps you motivated to work on your mission? Hmm. Um, I don't say that I'm always successful at it, but I'm an excellent, a true believer to a healthy mind and a healthy body. Um, I've got one thing I need to get rid of, but mm, that's following me for years. That's a, that's a habit. Um, what is it? I know. I smoke. Okay. <laughs> Wow, you got me saying this now in public. <laughs> I'm so knows. ashamed about it. Okay, I want to. I want to go continue the story. Well, you can cut it up. Yeah. Okay, that's the coming out, right? Um, yeah, that 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 is really stupid. Anyway, I think one of my best talents is that I don't need a lot of sleep, so I sleep extremely structured, um, four and a half to six hours a day max. Wow. And that really gives me a routine, which gives me the opportunity to slowly wake up, do my exercises, do my waking up, do my thinking, do my whatsoever, before the real day starts. And because most of the time the people then already are back to bed, I can also slow down really slow. So that can that's then meditation or whatever. I think that's important. And um, music is important to me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You play music or you listen to music? Don't play anymore. Listen a lot. Uh, far, far, far past. I was, uh, for a couple of years, I was playing records uh, as a DJ. But music has been in my life all, always. And I've got a phenomenal daughter who is at the Academy of Music Arts. So, wow. Um, yeah, so it's always been around. Yeah. Um, and you have to laugh. And actually, when I reflect on the last years, uh, last two or three years, I really didn't laugh enough. And um, that becomes natural again. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're laughing very well. You have a very addictive laugh. I want to <laughs> tell you. As soon, as soon as we met, I'm like, this guy laughs very well. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> the other question is, what were some of the beliefs that you used to hold? It can be last year, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, when you were standing in a desert in a soapbox uh, that you don't hold anymore. It can be personal, it can be business, you choose. I didn't lose it, but I had to find it back and it was a long path. When I engage with someone, I can only do it from complete, totally, utterly trust. And a lot of people came by over the years who violated that unconditional trust. And um, that hurts. And that then also takes you sometimes to wait too long on a decision you intuitive know that you have to make but you rationalize why you would continue something and that's where i really more often had i cannot believe that this individual is now doing this to me and it always hurts you the most when it comes from the one you love the most yes yeah but it's i i have the same issue and i found that before when i was unhappy i used to say i'm not going to trust this person until they prove me they're they're trustworthy and that was a mistake because then then you're looking for issues but now i switched it maybe a couple of years ago to i'm going to fully trust this person until they prove me wrong mm. and as soon as they prove me wrong i'll know okay this is this is what it is mm. and i just i was happier like my friendship has become much much deeper uh, but also expectations are not as high because well also i can trust you in one thing but some of the things some people make mistakes so also accepting that mistakes are made yes i made piles of stupid mistakes yeah and um mm, i also believe in a second chance most of the time yeah um but to be totally honest and frank and straightforward i rather have three souls where i can deeply connect with than 150 acquaintances and um mm, yeah yeah but i had to regain my trust again in trusting people and um yeah that was that was that was difficult at times yeah all right um if you would meet the younger self let's say 10 years ago. The younger self was time. Well, when you're yeah. when you're 15, 10 years ago. <laughs> 20 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um what advice would you give him? Work less hard. Work less hard. Yes. Please I, unpack. Hmm? <laughs> Please unpack that. Cuz you seem like a very hard working guy. No, 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 not at all. Okay. No, I keep myself busy, but I'm not working hard. No. What's the difference? Well, I had a phase in my career where my morning, working morning started in Japan and ended in California every single day, five to six days a week, which means you start somewhere at 7, 8 a.m. in the morning and you stop somewhere at 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock in the evening wow. every day. So you're running multiple teams and multiple time zones with multiple challenges who do not have direct instant contact. 
that then has an impact on the stakeholders, which are literally involving thousands of people. Wow. And they all come to you with decision making. And um, I was not aware what, for example, the impact was of my family at the time. I was not aware that um, the actually hours I had with a little bit of rest during the 24 hours was between 1 uh, p.m. in the afternoon and 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Mm, I was way too focused on getting that done. I neglected, uh, and most important, I neglected myself. So that I'm not doing anymore. So also the reason of traveling, when I'm in a region where I do my project, when I'm in that time zone, where I'm at the people I work with, and I can take the time instead of three days, four days, uh, airplane in and out, then it gives you much more satisfaction and you're much more effective. So your projects are also much more advancing and uh, accelerating. So yeah, I think that's the one who would answer your question. Beautiful. Uh, and the last one, according to Rick, how to live a happy and fulfilling life? The how-to. I think the how-to is for everyone to, dis that's everyone's path to find or to go back to. Yeah, but for you? <laughs> Actually, I'm living it right now. I'm as happy as can be. It took me... Um, What's your secret? What are you doing? How, like, what... Ah, Anatoly, I don't know. I, I stumble to life as everyone. No. Um, uh, what I needed to find is being proud of myself again. Um, what I needed to find is to be able to bring a spark to, the other, to others again. Yeah. And you do that in, in multiple dimensions. And so you do that physically, you do that spiritual, you do that mentally, you do that... Yeah, I truly believe in different dimensions at the same time, but that's a different podcast, I think. Um, it's part two for sure. Um, so you have to do that with your whole being, your whole soul, for you are and for suspect. Everything in balance. What I hear is... I can only feel phenomenal. Happiness is in a balance. Yeah, happiness is a vibrant light, right? I'm with you. Um, amazing those are all my questions before we go how can people find out more about you if they want to follow you they want to learn from you any social media have anything we'll put in the show notes but you can just tell them where they can go to find you well actually during this conversation came up I would really love people when they want to know a little bit it's about a three to four hour read read that book yeah. it's fun it, um, uh, that, so that's on BookBoon e-learning platform when you type in the title circle economy and behavioral change you'll get it yeah, or type in my neck my my name Rick. um that's one the second i don't do a lot of social media but i've got an instagram page when you're asking me now how i'm called on instagram i don't know we'll find it we'll put yeah. the show notes um and then Rick uh, the happy one <laughs> <laughs> happiness Rick right. and then uh, my LinkedIn LinkedIn I really look at so when people want to reach out um, LinkedIn is the best place to go so that could be via materialinnovation.center yeah. that could be via uh, Eric Lochsen's um, 
yeah, I think those are the most important ones. But to be honest, I'm never too busy with that kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you're living a happy life. How would you? How would you? But there's a yeah, happy, fulfilling. But we're gonna leave all the links there if you guys want to reach out and add some value to Rick. And please read about circle economy. I'm gonna read about that as well because I'm super, super, super uh, fascinated with that. And I really appreciate your time. I know you don't have a lot of it. You're a busy guy, but I really appreciate you coming here. I love being here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anatoly. And for everyone listening, you guys know where to find us on all social medias and just, just type the thing and go and find us. Talk to you guys next one. Bye-bye.